began a few weeks ago, a study of Christian doctrine or Christian theology. Theology is basically um, the study of God, the knowledge of God. And what we've come to see is that to know God, um, we, have to, we have to have revelation. God needs to reveal Himself to us. And so we've studied natural revelation, how God reveals Himself in the created order and in the creation of man. Um, but we've seen that uh, because of the fall, there are limitations to that. And we are in need for salvation um, of special revelation. We need God to speak clearly and directly to people, to human beings. And that's what we call special revelation. And sort of the uh, focus of special revelation for this week and, and next. Do we have a normal Sunday evening next week? Okay. Well, two in a row. That's great. Um, uh, the focus will be on Scripture on God's written, inscripturated Word. And this evening, I'm going to talk about what it means that we believe that Scripture, the, the 66 books of the Bible, the Old and New Testament, are inspired. Inspired is a big word. We use it a lot. We might not always know what the word means. And so I want to kind of clarify that this evening and then give you um, some evidence from Scripture of how the Bible views itself. So what do we mean when we say that the Bible is inspired? Like I said, that's a popular term. And I want to review a number of things that we don't mean. Because there's a lot of ways the word is used that are wrong. When we say that the Bible is inspired, we do not mean that the authors had exceptional natural gifts or some kind of intuition. Sometimes when you read Shakespeare or you look at a painting by Rembrandt, or hear a composition by Mozart, you say, man, that guy was inspired. Or some a movie critic might review a motion picture and say, the performance was just inspired. And what we mean was they have exceptional natural gifts to be able to do whatever they do in terms of artistry. It's not what we mean, that the prophets and the apostles were exceptionally gifted. We do not mean that the authors were merely illuminated. When you read the Bible, when I read the Bible, uh, the, the Holy Spirit illuminates us. He gives us light to have special insight to what the Word means. And so I might pray as I'm preparing a sermon or as I go to preach for the Holy Spirit to illuminate me, to give me special insight into the Word of God. We don't mean that the authors of Scripture merely had a heightened awareness of spiritual realities. We do not mean that God dynamically directed the thoughts, but not necessarily the words of the author. Sometimes when people say Scripture is inspired, they mean God guided the authors of Scripture so that they would communicate the right thoughts, but they chose their own words. So in other words, God kind of put an idea in Paul's head and then Paul figured out how he wanted to say it. So the thoughts are what's important, not the words. And that's what's behind some paraphrases of, of English Bibles. We want to get at the thought, the, the particular words aren't, are kind of secondary there. And some people under this view go so far as to say that Scripture is true and it has no errors in, in matters of, of doctrine and of matters of salvation. But when the authors are writing about history or they're writing about um, areas of science, then, um, then that's, that's not inspired. We don't, we don't believe that. We don't mean that the Bible becomes 
the Word of God as we encounter it. Um, Some people in history have said the great, infinite, transcendent God of the universe is so great, there is no way that He can be revealed within the confines of human language. And so, the Bible is merely the record of God's revelation. It's not the Word of God in itself, in its words, but as you have some kind of existential, is the word they'd use, or some spiritual encounter with the Word of God, then it becomes God's Word as you encounter it. But it's not God's Word in itself. We don't believe that. Neither do we believe that the Bible was mechanically dictated by God through writers as a typist uses a typewriter. So sometimes when people talk about inspiration, they mean some kind of robotic view in which God bypasses the author's personality and thought and He just kind of uses them as a mechanism. Like when you use a typewriter, you hit the the key for a T and the T springs up and types a T on the paper. And so God, you know, Paul was just mindless here, sitting in his room with a quill and a paper and, you know, some parchment. And just apart from God's mind, God just overtook him and just guided his hand so he mechanically wrote what God wanted him to write. Now, I have never met anyone or read anyone that actually holds to that view. But sometimes opponents of what I'm going to argue for will put that up as what's called a straw man. They'll they'll say, that's what inspiration is, that's what people mean, and that's so ridiculous, we just can't believe in the inspiration of the Bible. Um, So I just throw that out there to say that's not what we're arguing for. What do we mean by inspiration? Daniel Aiken, the president of Southeastern Seminary, offers this helpful definition. God superintended the human authors so that in their words, using their individual personalities... The Scriptures are inspired fully to the very words and are without error in all that they affirm. So Paul plays a role. Paul's going to write as Paul writes. And John's writing, his Greek is different than Paul's and different than Luke's and different than James. They keep their unique personality, their unique writing styles. But God so superintends them as they write His Word that the very words they choose are the words God wants. And the ideas communicated by those words are the very ideas God means for us to get and for them to communicate. So, the big theological phrase, for those of you who like big theological phrases, would be a verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. And I'll put that in layman's term for those of you who like layman's terms. Um, I mention that term because I heard it a lot in theological discussions. I never had any clue what it meant until I went to a dictionary. Um, It speaks to the extent and the degree of inspiration. What do we mean by plenary? The only place I've ever heard the word plenary used outside of this definition in normal life is maybe if you go to a conference or a convention and there are sessions. You might have breakout sessions and small group sessions and they would have a plenary session. And a plenary session is a session when all the people at the conference are expected to attend. That's because the word plenary means full or complete. And so when theologians speak of plenary inspiration, which we affirm, we believe that in the full and complete inspiration of Scripture. So in layman's terms, we believe that all of it, every part of it, 
is inspired. Matters of doctrine, matters of salvation, matters of science, matters of history, anything the Bible implies or teaches um, is inspired. All of it, every single part of it. All Scripture, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, is breathed out by God. And that's where the term inspiration comes from. The term breath and spirit are the same in Greek and in Hebrew. And so one translation says, instead of breathed out, they're inspired. God's breath, inspirited. His breath has gone into it. Um, it's coming from His speaking. Verbal. Verbal refers to the actual words of Scripture. Um, the very words that are written down with ink on the papyrus or on the scrolls. And so when we say we believe in verbal inspiration, we believe that the very words themselves of Scripture are inspired. We don't just believe the thoughts or the ideas that Paul and Peter and Isaiah were trying to get across are inspired. They are inspired. But we believe that the very words they chose to use are the words that God wanted them to write. And that's a very, very important thing. Daniel Aiken writes, The Holy Spirit so directed the authors of Scripture that they wrote the very thoughts He intended to be conveyed using the very words He intended them to be expressed with. Um, we see this in, in, in some examples of how Jesus speaks of the Old Testament. In Matthew chapter 19, he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he's quoting the words of Scripture, and he's saying, God said this. But if you go back and look that up in Genesis, it is Moses' commentary. Moses doesn't write it as a quote of God speaking. But Jesus says, God said it. What Moses wrote was God speaking. And Jesus, um, to, to draw attention to the importance of the very words of Scripture, in Matthew 22, when Jesus is questioned about the resurrection, He says, Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And Jesus' point has to do with a tense, a present tense that God spoke in. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, but I am the God of Abraham, which implies there is still life for Abraham. And so Jesus uses a very precise examination of a word to say, here's what the, the Old Testament doctrinally teaches about a resurrection. Well, what does the Bible say? That's, that's what I've been telling you. When we study anything in theology, our first question is, what does God say about it? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about its own inspiration? The answer is, the Bible claims that it is the Word of God. That's the Bible's assumption about itself. When, when we read the Bible, the Bible wants you to read it as something that is literally, historically true. And I came across, I think it's a good illustration. I've been reading through this little booklet by, um, by Wycliffe, Bible translators. I hope you know their ministry and pray for them. They do important work. And this is a story from the Philippines of a Bible translator. She moved to the Philippines and a, um, a man, a ma, an older man, adopted 
her as his sort of his American daughter and looked after her. And she explains, I ate most of my meals at Amah's house, I think that's how you pronounce it, nagging him with the gospel, explaining, reasoning, giving examples. He endured patiently, but didn't respond. What would it take to make him believe? One day, Amah casually picked up an English New Testament from my desk. He opened it to the first page, Matthew 1, which is a list of names. He stood frozen, staring at it. Amazed, he asked me, You mean this has a genealogy in it? I said, Yeah, but just skip over that so you can get to the good part. His eyes were still riveted to the page. You mean this is true? He asked as he struggled through the list of names. Filled with inspiration, there's that word inspiration, I got some shelf paper and made a genealogy from Adam to Jesus, from ceiling down to the floor. Amma took it over, all over the village explaining, we always thought that it was the rock and the banana plant that gave birth to people. But we don't have their names written down. Look, here are all the names written down. And she goes on to say, although their story accounted for human weakness, it didn't have their ancestors' names written down. These people loved Matthew's written genealogy. It was powerful. It proved the Bible was true. So when we, we, we read, you know, the end, maybe, you know, when we, Joshua was finished up Romans in our scripture reading, and you might be thinking, why in the world is he standing up there reading half a chapter of Paul saying, greet so-and-so and greet so-and-so and greet so-and-so and greet so-and-so. Why do we have to hear all these names? It's a powerful reminder that this is historical stuff. Paul was dealing with real people. It's true. And when this guy in the Philippines opened up the Gospel of Matthew and saw a genealogy, he saw the Bible wants us to believe that it's true. It's history. It's not a myth about a rock and a banana plant giving birth to people. The Bible thinks it's right. That's how the Bible comes to us. The Bible... Through, from, from cover to cover speaks to us specifically to say that it is true. Let's go to the Old Testament. The Old Testament views itself as inspired. At over 400 places in the Old Testament, we read, Thus says the Lord. I won't read you all of those scripture passages. Um, we probably don't have time for that tonight. But trust me, there's 400 occasions for that, which is a decree that cannot be challenged or questioned. And significant portions of the Old Testament follow that decree. Thus says the Lord. And authors such as Jeremiah and Amos and David will say that the Lord is speaking through them. How does the New Testament view the Old Testament? The New Testament view of the Old Testament. New Testament authors viewed the Old Testament as the inspired Word of God. The whole Old Testament was Scripture. It was written down, inscripturated. And Paul says to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3, he refers to the Old Testament as the sacred or the holy writings. And he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. So all of it that Paul considered Scripture was breathed out by God. It was sacred and it was holy. Peter writes in 2 Peter, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And in Hebrews 1, 
We read that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And the Old Testament was written by prophets. From Moses to Malachi, prophets wrote down God's word. And Hebrews says, God spoke by the prophets. This is God speaking. Well, how does Jesus view the Old Testament? Jesus' view of the Scriptures, He views the Old Testament as inspired. So if you think Jesus is a great teacher, but you don't think the Bible is the Word of God, then you don't think Jesus is a great teacher. Because He taught the Old Testament was God's Word. And He was either wrong in what He taught, or He was right. One example, in addition to what I've already shown you, Jesus said... Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And that's referring to a letter and a part of a letter. And so when Jesus speaks about the necessity of Scripture to be fulfilled, He talks about not just words, but letters. That's how precise Jesus gets in his view of the inspiration of Scripture. Every jot and tittle, as it's been said. Uh, Jesus speaks of Scripture as every word that comes from the mouth of God in Matthew 4. Jesus says Scripture in John 10 cannot be broken. He says in John 17 that God's Word is truth. It is true. Everything God's, God has said is true. Likewise, Jesus affirms the historical reliability of the Old Testament. Here's another thing. If you think the Old Testament is just full of myths and superstitious thinking, but you think Jesus is a good teacher, you can't think He's a good teacher because He was deceived. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, talks about Adam and Eve. He talks about Noah. He talks about the flood. He talks about Adam or Abraham. He talks about Jonah. And He speaks about all these people and their circumstances and the events in their lives as historical realities. Jesus believed they were historical people that really lived in situations that really happened. And so we cannot dismiss Genesis 1 through the book of Malachi because Jesus believed it was historical and it was true. Likewise, the early church in their preaching taught the inspiration of Scripture. Twice in Acts 1 and Acts 4... The apostles say that the Holy Spirit was speaking through David. So when David penned his psalms, the Holy Spirit was speaking. And in Acts 3, twice they say that God was speaking by the mouth of the prophets. There are several other scriptures I've listed there for you of times when uh, the New Testament and the early church and the apostles assume that the Old Testament is inspired. It is God speaking. Well, that covers the Old Testament... But what should we think about the New Testament? What does the New Testament say about itself? Well, to begin with, I should remind you of what Jesus promised the disciples. Jesus promised His disciples the Holy Spirit. And He said to them, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus promised His apostles that they were going to get divine and supernatural help after He left. The Holy Spirit would help them remember what Jesus taught, and the Holy Spirit would teach them. He would instruct them in what 
was the true meaning of what Jesus taught. That's what the rest of the New Testament is. Is the apostles interpreting for us what Jesus' teaching means for the church. And Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would aid them in that. And so we should expect the New Testament to be inspired. The New Testament assumes itself to be God's Word. And we'll see a number of places I'll show you where the apostles assume that what they were writing was inspired by God and on the same level as the Old Testament prophets and as the the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And just step back and just think about what an amazing thing that is. Imagine if I were to tell you that what I was writing and what I was teaching was on par with what Moses wrote. Wouldn't that be an amazing claim? Or to believe that's what you were doing. I mean, that is just a huge thing. And the apostles say that about their writing. I just think that's incredible. It's just incredible. Peter referred to Paul's writing as Scripture. This is one of my favorite passages for a couple reasons. In 2 Peter 3, Peter writes, "...count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters." There are some things in them, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. So, Peter is writing about Paul's letters. And he says that Paul's letters have things in them that are hard to understand. So, if you ever read through Paul's letters and you're confused by what Paul writes, be comforted. Peter was often confused too. Um, it's not to say we can't understand them, but Peter found it hard to understand. So that just that comforts me. And Peter still considered him beloved. But then he says, there are things in them that are hard to understand, and the ignorant twist these things just like they twist the other Scriptures. Now, Peter could have written, they twist Paul's letters just like they twist the Scriptures, but he doesn't just say that. He says, just like the other scriptures. And that word other shows us he counts Paul's letters as being part of scripture. So within Paul's lifetime, Peter was telling the church Paul's letters are scripture. They were immediately accepted as the word of God. Peter says this of all the apostles in 2 Peter 3. He says, Remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the command of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So he puts the apostles on par with the Old Testament prophets. And he says that what the apostles write to them and tell them is a command of the Lord Jesus. It is inspired and authoritative. Paul refers to the Gospel of Luke as Scripture. Paul, in 1 Timothy 5.18, he writes, the Scripture says, now remember, Scripture is technically writing. That's what the word means. It's used in a religion sense, religious sense for holy writing. Paul says, the Scripture, this written word, says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. 
So he says the scripture says two things. Now the first scripture that he quotes is Matthew 25, 4, which talks about not muzzling an ox when it treads out the grain. But the second writing, the second scripture that he quotes is the laborer deserves his wages. The principle is there in the Old Testament, but the, that is nowhere written in the Old Testament. The laborer deserves his wages. But in the Greek, word for word, it is written in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 10.7 on the lips of Jesus, where Jesus says the laborer deserves his wages. Paul is quoting scripture, something that is written. And the fact that it's word for word the same as the Gospel of Luke, I think, tells us that the Gospel of Luke was written in Paul's lifetime, and Paul viewed it as Scripture, which tells us uh, how quickly, again, the writings of the apostles were being adopted by the church and the apostles as, as on par with the Old Testament. Paul considers his writings to be on the level of Scripture. Paul considers his own writings on the level of Scripture. Now, you need to put your thinking caps on here because I'm going to show you two difficult and often misunderstood passages from Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. You can turn there if you want. You're probably familiar with them. In 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 12, Paul writes this. Some have used this to argue against inspiration. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Now, some take that to say, when Paul says, I say this to you, I, not the Lord, that he's saying, what I'm writing here does not come from the Lord. And they say, so it's not inspired. It's just sort of Paul's off-the-cuff remark. It's, uh, you know, take it or leave it advice. He might be smart, but, you know. Um, in fact, I, I once heard a pastor say, now I have some thoughts on this issue. I don't find this in the Bible, but you know how Paul says, I say this to you, I, not the Lord. Well, that's what I'm going to do now. And I went, <gasps> because that's not what Paul is doing there at all. He's not just saying, here's a good idea, I think I have. What's going on in this passage? When Paul says, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, he's speaking about a wife not divorcing her husband. And he's referring to, I believe, a passage, a famous passage in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus in his earthly ministry says that a wife should not divorce her husband, and if she does and remarries, she's committing adultery. So this is something the Lord taught in His earthly ministry. But then Paul goes on, and notice, even when he says, not I, but the Lord, he says, I'm giving this charge. He's just giving the Lord's charge. When he goes on to say, to the rest I say, not I, but the Lord, he's dealing with the situation of a brother who is married to an unbelieving wife. Jesus never taught in His earthly ministry on what to do if you're married to an unbeliever. In fact, you wonder if that situation could even have occurred in that period, maybe, unless you married someone who was non-Jewish or so forth. 
But that's not something that we have any teaching from Jesus on in His earthly ministry. So Paul's saying, I'm not taking something that we know was the teaching of the Lord on His lips when He was on earth here. I'm telling you what I, as someone who's been given wisdom by God, has to say. In fact, Paul goes on in verse 12 to, to, to address the situation, or in verse 20, 25, he goes on to address the situation of someone who is converted but unmarried. And he says, now concerning virgins, I have no command from the Lord. In other words, Jesus didn't say anything directly about what, what to do if you get converted and you're single. But I give my judgment as one by who the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Here's what I'm saying as an apostle. And because of what the Lord has done in me, I'm trustworthy. You should take and follow my word. And Paul makes this clear. He begins 1 Corinthians in chapter 2 by saying that in his ministry and his teaching, he imparts wisdom in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Paul claims at the beginning of the letter, he is taught by the Spirit. And at the end of the letter... Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Paul says if anyone is spiritual, he should recognize my writings as the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the view of his own writing Paul took. It had the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ standing behind it. Paul says something similar in 1 Thessalonians 4.15, that we declare these things by the word from the Lord. So that kind of summarizes it. The Bible, the Old and the New Testament, comes to us claiming to be the inspired, authoritative word of God. Now, if I was standing on the campus of the University of Iowa, telling them why the Bible is the inspired word of God... What would be the first question someone raised their hand and asked at the end of my arguments I just presented? First objection would be, that is circular reasoning. You came in here and you assumed, this is the Word of God, we said prove it, and you said we know it's the Word of God because it says it's the Word of God. How do we answer that? Well, Millard, Eric, Millard Erickson in his textbook says, this is only circular reasoning if the witness of the Bible regarding itself, is taken as the final proof. And he says what we're doing when we present these arguments is allowing the Bible to plead its own case. Like a defendant might be allowed to give his own testimony in court when he's being tried. And so Erickson says, um, if, if a defendant gets to give testimony in their case, that's not all that's considered. You have, uh, you have character witnesses and eyewitnesses and you have physical evidence and all these other things. And all of those together are intended to point the judge and the jury to what the truth is. And so he says, presenting these scriptures is not the final proof. It's just letting the Bible plead its own case. I find that to be an insufficient answer. And the question I think Millard Erickson's response begs is, okay, Professor Erickson, what is the final proof? What is the final rock-solid authoritative evidence that the Bible is the Word of God? Is it everything taken together? Archaeology plus uh, extra-biblical history plus the Bible plus our reason? Is, is that the final authority? What if I'm locked in a room with no access to any of those other things and I just have the Bible telling me it's the Word of God? 
The question I have to ask is, who in all the universe is the final, unquestionable, you cannot go above him, authority in matters of truth? God is. And if God says something, it is true. It requires nothing else for it to be proven. Because God is God and He speaks truth. And so, in my mind, if the Bible says, if the Bible is God's Word, and God says, this is my Word, it is inspired, that is final proof. What was the question I asked this morning? Why do people not believe? It's not an intellectual failure, it's a moral failure. When people refuse to believe the Bible, it's not because they don't have enough archaeological evidence. It's because they're in rebellion against the God who has spoken. Now, that's not to say that archaeology and reason and extra-biblical history aren't helpful in removing stumbling blocks. And they enforce and encourage us to see that the Bible really does accord with history. But the Bible doesn't need anything else to show us it's God's Word. It's God's Word and He says it's God's Word. So it's God's Word. So how do we know the Bible is God's Word? Here's my answer. First of all, the Bible claims that it is God's Word. How do we come to know this? Well, second of all, we are convinced of the Bible's claims to be God's Word as we read it. The Holy Spirit reveals to us, does a spiritual work in us so that we see God's Word for what it is. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And then Jesus makes this amazing claim in John chapter 10. You do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You do not become a sheep by believing. Jesus says you believe because you are a sheep. The reason you don't believe is because you're not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. It is a spiritual condition that results in us having open eyes or closed eyes. Finally, the words of Scripture are self-attesting. Like I said, we, we, don't, we can't finally appeal to any higher authority than the Word of God. And so they must attest to themselves. So in application, the inspiration of the Bible should give us confidence of having divine instruction and it should give us motivation to study it. You should go to the Bible confident that God has spoken. And you should be motivated. Yeah, God has spoken. I want to know what He said, so I'm going to go to the Word. When we come back next week, we're going to see some applications of inspiration that the Bible is without error, and it is authoritative for our lives. So let me close us in prayer. Father, thank You for Your life-giving words, for these wonderful words of life. We pray that this would be a church where they would be proclaimed and loved and heard and obeyed and demonstrated and prized. In Jesus' name, Amen.